Our scripture reading today comes from John 8, 48 through 59. The Jews answered Jesus, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. And who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the God. Be seated, please. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I have a bit of a head cold today. Uh, I know what you're thinking. I tested negative twice, so it is a head cold. But uh, just, you know, just bear with me today. We are in summer. Hopefully you've realized that by now, which uh, is vacation time. I hope you've been able to get away and do something restful during this time, whether that's a road trip or time with family. I just took uh, an amazing trip with my parents this summer uh, with my kiddos, which was really, really fun. Uh, And there was a moment, though, that reminded me of something really, really important. And so one of those nights, I was putting my kids to bed, and we had just spent the day walking around this amazing city, but we, I mean, we spent, it was a long day, we were all tired, and we were with my parents all day, and my kids were there, and so I'm putting my sweet, dear son to bed. And uh, as I'm laying him down, well, not really, he's too big for that, but as I'm tucking him in, uh, he, he whispers to me, you know, you look a lot like your dad, as we said. <laughs> and I said, yes. And I said, then someday, son, you will look like me. <laughs> and he said, yikes. <laughs> and he's not wrong. Uh, he's not wrong. And uh, the older I get, the more I realize how important family is, where we come from and who raised us and what our homes were like, and that's important. Uh, But there's also, at the same time, it's true that no matter how hard we try, eventually we will look in the mirror and we will see our mom or our dad, right? just happens. Or we will watch our behavior or what we're saying, and we'll realize in a moment, oh my goodness, that's something my parents would have done. 
Our fa- and it's because our family shapes us. It shapes us in profound ways that we're hardly even conscious of most of the time. And family's bigger than even just the nuclear family, right? There's, there's uh, almost like the clan and the tribe, extended families with their own stories and histories and patterns of behavior and struggles. And family's a really important thing. And it explains a bit of who we each are as individuals. And the, the Jews in our text today that we just read, they understood this dynamic too. We just read from John chapter 8. And actually, I want you to go ahead and turn there now. If you have your Bible, turn to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 8. Because I want us to see this, I want us to remind us where we've been here a little bit. If you've been with us these last few weeks in particular in the book of John, uh, this is easy to lose track of between Sundays, but we've actually been in one long conversation. And it's a conversation between the Jews worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem and Jesus. And it's a discussion about who Jesus is, where he's from, and what he's all about. And we've actually heard several sermons on these Sundays about this back and forth between these two groups of people. It started actually all the way back in chapter 7. Jesus is preaching and teaching in the temple, and the Jews are questioning him. Now, just a few verses ago, and if you were here last week, Pastor Don spoke about this. The Jews say to Jesus, Abraham is our father. They want him to know, Abraham is our father. That's verse 39. And they're talking about family. Abraham and his children, Jesus, and, and, and their children, that's, that's where we come from, Jesus. That's who we are. That's our family. But Jesus has told them already that they aren't really in Abraham's family. They're not like Abraham. They don't look or sound like him because if they were, they would listen to him. This is how Jesus puts it in verse 39. He says, if you are Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But you seek to kill me now, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Jesus is saying, if you are truly by faith in the family of Abraham, if you trusted God and you waited and watched for God like Abraham did, you would be in my family. You would know my father and you would know me. So this is our question this morning. Are we in Jesus' family? Are we in Jesus' family? When we look in the mirror and we listen to ourselves, when we go to work on Monday morning, when we put our kids to bed, when we come home after a long day and we look back at how we behave, do we see Jesus? Are we like Him? Are we a part of the family that He's come to offer to us and being shaped by it? Or are we part of something else? Now, Jesus here is talking to a group of people who he desperately wants to be a part of his family. He's offering this to them. But the more he tries to help them, the more they show they are not related to him. They're in another family altogether. And this whole conversation is like a diagnostic for us. It's, it's something we can look at. And there are some key characteristics here. There's some traits here that Jesus hints at that show us what family we're in. So, like I said, if you haven't done it yet, turn to John chapter 8. The Jews in the temple are questioning Jesus. And because Jesus keeps holding up a mirror to them and saying, you don't look like Abraham. In fact, last week he said, you look more like the devil. You look more like the father of lies. 
These people are getting really, really mad at him. And so we're starting in the middle of this conversation, verse 48. The Jews answered Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Because, hey, they feel like they're losing the argument, so now it's, start, it's time to start name-calling. That's their strategy. Remember, the Samaritans were an ethnic group who lived just to the north of Judea, uh, and the Jews and the Samaritans really hated one another. We actually preached a sermon a little bit about that. This was a while ago now in John chapter 4 when Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman. That's an amazing story. Uh, but all you need to know is in the first century, to call a Jew a Samaritan was a deeply insulting thing to say. And of course, no one wants to be accused of being possessed by a demon. And so you put those together, you're a Samaritan and you're possessed by a demon, you've got a pretty nasty insult there. But Jesus, he shows incredible patience. And he says in verse 49, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. And now Jesus is saying again, if, if we had the same Father in heaven, if you were in my family, you wouldn't dishonor me like this, because you would know it would dishonor my Father. Notice when Jesus talks about his divine identity, which this isn't the first time he's done that in John's gospel, that he is the Son of the Father, it enrages the people who are listening. But Jesus point, points this out, not because of arrogance on his part. He says, I don't glorify myself. It is obedience to his Father and his Father's mission in the world. And he has been at pains in this whole discussion to convince the people listening to him that what Jesus says about himself and what he does, even when it's controversial, is simple obedience to his Father who's in heaven. And he ends this, uh, this, this uh, note to them in verse 51 with, a, with an offer. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, this is another way of pointing something out that, that John has noted positively elsewhere. So, if you remember back in chapter 6, Jesus says a controversial word. A bunch of disciples actually leave him. He's talking to Peter, and Peter responds to Jesus by saying, Jesus, where else would we go? You have words of eternal life, right? He says, if you keep my word, you won't taste death. Peter says, your words are eternal life. And one of the distinctives of Jesus' family, okay, one of the ways we know we're with him is by keeping his words. This is how Jesus puts it. If you're in his family, you keep his words. Now, there's a couple, couple layers here to the language of keeping Jesus' words. And, and the first is simply about obedience. To keep Jesus' word is to obey his word. That's a key characteristic of Jesus' family. Obedience to Jesus, and by extension, obedience to his Father. That's the same thing. And I, I put that simply because this really isn't rocket science. Sometimes we can overcomplicate what it means to, to obey to obey in Jesus' family. When Jesus teaches us about the kind of life that he offers to us here and now, the kind of life we can live today by his power, he expects us to not simply agree with him intellectually, but to do it, to live it, to grow in obedience to his word, to keep them. So, for example, when Jesus says to love our enemies, 
which is a distinctive command that Jesus gives. It's unique, really, in all the world. Love your enemies. Family members with Jesus don't simply say, that's a lovely sentiment, and then go and scream online at someone they disagree with. (laughs) Or think nasty thoughts about the person who has the, the wrong yard sign in their yard, who's their neighbor. Wherever we encounter an enemy, Jesus says, love them. Even in serious disagreement. But this family obedience is not because we earn something from Jesus. And I I want to be really clear on this. It's because, as Jesus says, His words, His instruction, His design is eternal life. Obedience to Jesus doesn't just give us access to life. It's not a test that we pass in order to then get heaven. That's not how this works. The words, the instruction is life. And you know this because Jesus obeys. Jesus himself obeys. He constantly obeys. In fact, if you pay attention to Jesus' words about himself, in particular in this conversation, but all over John's gospel, he's constantly reminding us that his real power comes from obedience to and dependence upon his Father. He points that out over and over and over again. So, Jesus, where do you get your power? Where do you get your grace? Where do you get your patience? Where do you get your conviction? Where do you get your words, your example? He always points to his Father. For example, in chapter 5, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. What the Father does, the Son does. What the Father says, the Son says. And if we are in Jesus' family, we increasingly sound like that. We obey not to earn our place in the family of Jesus, but because that's what it means to be in the family in the first place. Which means that we don't simply obey Jesus' words. We love them. Do you see the difference there? We don't simply obey for the sake of obeying. We love what Jesus says. That's how Jesus understood obedience to his Father. It's an act of love to his Father. It's how we understand obedience now to him. So ask yourself, is our love for Jesus' words increasing? We, can't, we won't obey him perfectly, but is our love increasing for his word? Do we find we read his word and want to obey even if it's difficult at first, even if we don't fully understand at first. This this is part of our training with Jesus because Jesus doesn't just want obedience to his words. He wants us to love his words. And I can't illustrate this better than Dallas Willard. And if you've not been around Christ's community for very long, then maybe you haven't heard that name. But Dallas Willard has profoundly shaped, he's a professor from USC. He's with the Lord now, but he's profoundly shaped our thinking around discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus as his apprentices. And Dallas Willard would talk about the Sermon on the Mount or the Ten Commandments, these high watermarks of where God reveals his design for life. It's like, hey, live this way. And he says, what Jesus is after is not so much people who begrudgingly obey the Sermon on the Mount, but people who by the power of the Spirit come to believe there's no better way to live than the Sermon on the Mount. Do you see the difference? Like, why else would we do any, why else would we live any other way? 
This is eternal life. Obedience is the life we want to live. And being part of Jesus' family means that not only our obedience to his word grows over time, but our love for it grows too. So is our love for Jesus' word increasing? Now, for Jesus' opponents here in this conversation, they can't imagine Jesus' word giving life. Like, they are only offended. They have no idea what Jesus is talking about. And you see that in verse 53. They say back to him, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who did you make yourself out? Who do you make yourself out to be? Now, this is the, that question is the irony around this whole conversation. Because they're saying, are you making yourself greater than Abraham? And we know, yeah, Jesus is greater than Abraham. But Jesus is not here to flaunt that. His mission is not to outshine Abraham. It is to invite these people, as they actively insult him and yell at him, invite them into his family with Abraham. Verse 54, Jesus answered, I glorify, if, I, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So they keep bringing up Abraham, and Jesus is saying, Listen, don't you know that when Abraham and Sarah gave birth to Isaac, their son Isaac, the promised son of God, that they in a sense saw the miraculous provision that only God can provide. To provide life where they have never found life. They named him Isaac. It means laughter because they were in disbelief at God's goodness. He says, don't you know Abraham looked forward to this moment, to me, and was glad. And yet here you are, yelling at me, claiming to be a part of his family. But again, this only frustrates them more. This is verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and, and have you seen Abraham? Right? They're thinking, Jesus, how can you talk about Abraham and how he felt about you and your moment? You're not 50 years old. Abraham has been dead for hundreds of years. And you can almost hear them laughing. It's like, this guy thinks he was around when Abraham was around. But it's so much worse than that. If they think that's bad, wait until they hear what Jesus says next. Verse 58. This is how he responds. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now that phrase, I am, is God's name for himself in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 when he meets Moses at the burning bush, incredibly famous and important story in the Old Testament. And Moses asks God, whom he's just encountered at the burning bush, he says, who do I say that you are? What's your name? And God says, tell them I am that I am. Now, these Jews in the temple, they thought Jesus was dumb for claiming to be a contemporary of Abraham, to be an equal of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You misunderstand me. I'm not an equal of Abraham. I'm the Lord of Abraham. I'm the word who was with God, as John put it in chapter one, and is God. 
Jesus says, I'm not here because Abraham has his power, his authority. Abraham did not send me into the world. And I don't appeal to you on the basis of Abraham. Abraham and his calling and his life is only to be understood as a part of my power and my authority. And his whole life was about waiting for, anticipating this moment right now. Now, make no mistake, and this isn't the first time Jesus has done this, but make no mistake, Jesus has no more offensive word than this. He claims to be the most important person in the story of God. He claims to be the very center of the universe. He claims to be the reason for being, the highest authority in the cosmos. And this claim of Jesus's, which we're going to see in a minute, it sets these people off. They cannot believe he has the authority of God, and they want to kill him. But take a step back, pause for a moment. Let's ask ourselves, or let's say to ourselves, if you're in his family, you embrace his authority. If you're in this family of Jesus, you embrace his authority. And at a minimum, that means accepting that, that Jesus is who he claims to be. You can't get over that. We have to deal with who Jesus says he is. To be in Jesus' family is to believe that he is the I am of the Exodus story, that he is the eternal son of the Father who was and is and is to come, as we just sang. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This has always been a central claim of the Christian faith, that this is who Jesus is. And the reason it's always been a central claim of the Christian faith is because Jesus said it. I am who I am. So embracing Jesus' authority is not, is not less than knowing who he really is, but it is more than that. It's trusting also in his power and his plan and his identity and his design, even when there, things don't make sense to you. Even in our most confused and painful moments, to know and to trust in that authority, not simply to acknowledge it, but to rely on it, to need it, to know and trust in Jesus as I am over your life. Is our trust getting deeper like that? Is our trust going deeper? Again, this is a defining characteristic of Abraham's walk before God, his deepening trust in his power and his authority and his plan, even when things do not make sense. When we go to Jesus with our doubts or our fears or our shames or our questions, do we hear his I am? Is that a part of how we listen to him? When we pray to him to provide for us or to be near to us or to help us as we should, do we increasingly trust in his authority? Do we hear him say, you know, before, you know, listen, before your sin, I am. Before your financial stress that I know is a big deal, do you, know, do you remember that I am? Before your marriage struggle or your loneliness and your singleness or your doubts and your fears about the future, before your anger about the moment or your anxiety about the future, before your fears that keep you up at night, do you remember that I am and that that's who you're talking to? I am. Now, for most of us in this room, we are probably at least open to the idea that Jesus is who he says he is. Probably. 
But it's another thing to trust Jesus and his authority and power in the places that matter to us the most. Is our trust going deeper like that? That's a critical part of being in Jesus' family, trusting in his I am more than our ability to plan or control or predict or accomplish or even sometimes understand. Because before any of that stuff, Jesus says, I am, I am. Now these people are listening to Jesus and they can't handle this statement of authority. Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him and Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now they decide here that Jesus has blasphemed. He's crossed a line. He has said something untrue about God, which to be fair, in Jewish law, blasphemy was punishable by death. You were supposed to go to trial first, but whatever. Uh, Jesus miraculously slips away and leaves the temple. His time has not yet come. And that's the end of this conversation. That's it. But here's the thing, okay? As I've looked at this story this week, this is actually the part that floors me the most. We've been, especially if you've been reading along in John this whole way. So if you've been following us in this gospel, we have heard John say incredible things about Jesus. He starts off by saying, this is the divine word. Jesus is the logos who created all things. He turned water into wine. He's walked on water. He's healed diseases and illnesses that no one else could, could handle. He's fed 5,000 people or more from a few loaves of bread and fish. This guy, if we take this seriously, this guy can alter DNA. He can wipe out bacteria at the microscopic level. He can change the weather. He has unbelievable power and authority over all of the created world. Imagine for a moment what he could do to these people. Imagine Jesus veiled in flesh, John says, is a being of unimaginable power, of never-ending understanding and wisdom. He is like us in his humanity, but he is completely unlike anyone or anything in his divinity. We are talking about someone who thought of the stars. We're getting these incredible images from this web telescope, we're just beginning to see and understand the beauty of, and the magnitude of the created world. We're talking about a person who set the planets in motion like he was hanging a mobile over a crib. That's how easy it is for him. Standing right in front of these people and they pick up stones to kill him, to judge the judge, what could he have done if he wanted to? How could he have gotten rid of that problem like that? But what does he do? He shows mercy. Mercy is his response. Mercy for the name-calling and the sarcasm and the judgment and the violence. And John wants us to see this because he's setting us up for something. And Jesus needs us to see it too. If you're in his family, you know you need his mercy. You know you need his mercy. Stick around Jesus long enough, and what you'll find is that all kinds of people follow him. People who are rich, people who are poor, 
people who are men, people who are women, people who are from the north, south, east, west, of the, all tribes and tongues and nations. But what unites them perhaps more than anything else, seriously, when you get right down to it, is a need for mercy. This is what unites this family. And we all come to him before we probably even can obey or even really know what it means to submit to him. But we come to him because we know we need his mercy. We've understood his offer. These people don't, but we do. And we should be floored by this. And I don't know another way to put this. Does his mercy blow you away? This is part of what it means to be in his family. When we see it, we can't explain it. Do we understand daily, hourly, that the mercies we receive from him are unending? Can we sing, my sins, they are many, but his mercy is more? Do we understand the patience and the restraint that Jesus exercises to love us the way that he does love us? That when the Bible says he removes our transgression as far as the east is from the west, that that it's serious. That the most powerful thing, and this is John's argument, that the most powerful thing that Jesus does for us is not setting the stars in the heavens or or creating the beasts of the deep, but showing his mercy to sinners like these people and like us in this room. That the real proof that Jesus is who he says he is is not the miracles, it's not the fireworks, it's staying on the cross for mercy's sake. Even for people who would stone him to death if they could. Do you see that more than anything else in this whole story, Jesus offer a mercy to these people. Now, perhaps you're here today and you're skeptical of who Jesus claims to be or you're not interested in obeying him or for whatever reason, you're like this close to just walk, giving up, walking away. What, hear me say, whatever doubts, whatever failures, whatever fears are driving you to hide or to run or to anger, or to sin, I want to remind you that you are still invited to this family. This family, like right here, in front of you, with Jesus, in in His name. Not because anyone here is perfect, far from it. Not because we have some special favor with God that you don't. We don't. But because, and this is a gospel promise, everything hangs on this, because Jesus promises, no matter what baggage you bring to him, no matter what questions and doubts, no matter what fears and shames, whatever you bring to the table, his mercy is more. His mercy is more. Let's pray to him now. Jesus, I pray for each one here In particular now, I pray for those who do not know your mercy, that they would come to know it, to trust it, as the beginning of eternal life with you. And for those of us who have trusted in your mercy, help us by your power to be a people who love your word and who live it, not because we have to, but because we love to. And by your power, make us a people of mercy because we have received so much mercy.
Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.